Amen. Amen. We're going to, today we're finishing up the, the thankfulness, and today, the attitude of thanksgiving, we're talking about the choice of thanksgiving, the choice of thanksgiving. And we're going to turn to Habakkuk. You don't have to turn, they'll be on the screen, aren't you thankful? Because you're like, man, I didn't know there was even a book called Habakkuk, and I had this marked, and now I've got to find it again. Okay, Habakkuk, chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, it says, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields, yet, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Man, aren't you depressed? Nothing's growing, nothing's happening, nothing's going on. There's no cows, there's no sheep, there's no nothing. It says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The choice of thanksgiving. Have you ever been robbed? Anyone ever been robbed before? <laughs> Uh, one of the most, uh, you, you know, I, I think I've told it before, but one, one time I was probably uh, 15 or 16 and I was uh, taking a trip by myself. I, was, I had to catch the train a few hours south and I had two suitcases with me or two bags with me and I was carrying them because that's back in the old days before everything rolled, right? And uh, what amazing invention. People were like, we could put wheels on these things. So I was carrying my bags and I had a brand new hat on my head that I was just, man, I loved that hat. And this was like, this was the inaugural trip for that hat. And I'm walking through the train station. There's people everywhere. And all of a sudden, someone walks by me and takes the hat off my head. And I have a split second. I'm like, I know I can't chase them carrying two bags. Do I drop my bags, chase them, and then risk coming back and my bags aren't here? And I just, I was like, I got to just keep going because then my train was leaving. And I was, ah, oh, that made me so mad that someone, because I was like, I couldn't do nothing. I had two, two big bags. Oh, it made me so mad. The hat off my head, that's just ridiculous. <laughs> that wasn't in the verse, but it should be. <laughs> But there was a, uh, an incident that happened about a robbery, and, and it deals with the choice of Thanksgiving. comes from, and I thought this was great for those who have been in the teaching class, because I turned to this lesson, and this analogy comes from the life of a famous Bible commentator, Sir Matthew Henry. <laughs> anyway, for the few people that get that. But crime affects everyone, even the, the, the Bible scholars were not immune for, from it. And this example happened to Matthew Henry one day. And here's how he responded to being robbed. His diary records the event this way. March 8th, the Lord's Day. In the evening I went to London. I preached Mr. Roswell's evening lecture on Psalms. Oh, it's all Roman numerals. In the book of Psalms, the joy, 8916. <laughs> the joyful sound. As I came home, I was robbed. The thieves took from me about 10 or 11 shillings. My remarks upon it were... One, what reason have I to be thankful to God who have traveled so much and yet was never robbed before? Two, what a deal of evil the love of money is the root of, that four men would venture their lives and souls for about half a crown apiece. Number three, see the power of Satan in the children of disobedience. That's what I was thinking on the train after my hat was stolen. 
The power of Satan was in that child of disobedience. Number four, see the vanity of worldly wealth, how soon we may be stripped of it, how loose, therefore, we should sit to it. But somewhere along the way in his meditations of his diary, his, as he was thinking about it, uh, and, and we begin to look, we see that he begins to change his tune somehow, and it ties in with the verse in 1 Thessalonians, and everything give thanks, and this is what he later writes after he's talked about how awful it is, and I can't believe the love of money would drive people to do this, and here I've traveled to go and preach, and then while I was traveling to go preach for my friend, I got robbed. He says this, he ends with this prayer, Lord, I thank thee first because I was never robbed before. Second, because although they took my purse, see my bag is okay, they did not take my life. Third, because although they took my all, it was not much. (laughs) And fourth, because it was I who was robbed, robbed and not I who robbed. Although we're tempted to think that the circumstances of life dictate what our attitude should be, The truth is that we are firmly in command of our state of mind. Even if we suffer crime, even if we suffer fraud, abuse, mistreatment, we do not have to sink into victimhood or bitterness. We can still choose a course of gratitude despite the negative forces that may attack us. Thanksgiving is a choice. In fact, uh, I was reading, um, and there was, uh, uh, he works in the medical field and he works with trauma and various things. His name is Edwin Renault. And he, was, he has a lot of things he's written about trauma, how it affects people's lives. And he made this statement, I'll just kind of summarize it for you, but he, he studies people that have uh, gone through traumatic experiences, what we would consider traumatic experiences. And he's, he came to this conclusion that there is no such thing as a traumatic experience. There's no such thing. Because when you study people, trauma is relative. It's relative. Because there's people who come through things and and you're like, how in the world? But this is what he says. He says, this is what defines whether something that we go through is considered traumatic. He said it is based solely upon our response to the event. That some people respond in a traumatic way. Very interesting that he really comes down and says that uh, uh, what makes a traumatic event traumatic is the choices that we make. And Ezra chapter 3 we find that the foundation of the new temple was laid and when it was there was a mixture of emotions and responses and some people like to be told that there's a blank that they should fill in so mixture mixture is the word there was a mixture of emotions and responses we see the foundation is laid and in Ezra he talks about this incident and there's various ways that you can view this incident but when, he, when the foundation is laid, it said the people gather together and they see these, the, the foundation laid of this temple that's being put up. They haven't had a temple for many years and there's, there's different responses that happen. It says that the elders, they come and they are weeping loudly at the sight. And then it says the rest of the congregation, they are uh, shouting and praising at the same sight. And again, there's various ways that you can go with this, but we do see that there are two different uh, uh, reactions to the same event. And, and this, this, uh, this difference points out the overwhelming power of choice that we have when confronted with circumstances. And we're going to look at a few different areas, different choices that we have. We see that in this case, there were some who, you could say, wept because of the joy they saw, but there's also the idea that some of them wept because it didn't match what they thought used to be. 
And so there's people who you could say were standing there while some are rejoicing, some are mourning, some are praising for what is going to happen that the temple is about to rebuild, and there's some people that are upset because the temple isn't what it once was. Two opposite responses. And so we look at some different things, really two lenses of response that we can have, and we're going to look at several different things here. And the first one when we look at situations, when we look at circumstances, the first lens that we can look through them is through the lens of nostalgia. And that can bring about two things. It can bring about resentment or it can bring about rejoicing. You see, the generation that establishes the status quo, the generation that establishes the norm, uh, they assume a protector mentality. If you've started something, then you don't like to see it change a whole lot because uh, you went through all the stuff and you went through what's the best way we can do this and what's the, you went through all of that stuff at one point before and now someone comes along and says, well, that's not the best way, you can probably do it better. And so anyway, we can start taking that person and say, well, they think that I'm not very good and that they're better than me. (laughs) And so... We have this thing where we begin to protect kind of the way things, the status quo. And, it, and really, that's a guard against change. And we're going to walk some fine lines here because not all change is good change, but we'll get to that in just a minute. But sometimes we get so caught up in this that we don't like to deviate at all from anything from the way that it used to be. And really, though, when we look at nostalgia in a negative sense, it can become more of a prison cell than really what it should be And that should be a starting point. Should be a starting point. Change may be difficult, but change is inevitable. It's inevitable. And those who resist it risk losing everything. It is impossible to go through life without change. Okay? That doesn't mean that you have to like change. It doesn't mean that you have to enjoy change. But you have to know that change is inevitable. Um, I, I I was telling... A story to some to some people, and uh, it was about me trying to rekindle some nostalgia in my life. Um, I used to I used to have some sort of athletic ability. I was about to go pro in a number of sports, but the Lord, no, <laughs> He saved me. I was about to go amateur in a few things. So I used to have a, de- a decent time running the mile. And so uh, it's been several years ago now. <laughs> well, there was a point in my life when I thought, you know, there, there's a point in your life when you still contemplate getting fit, and there's a point in your life when you accept change. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, you know, here's what I'm going to do. I know I can't run the way that I used to. I know that, because nobody can run like that. But I thought, maybe, what, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get me a stopwatch. I'm going to go to the track. I'm going to time myself on a mile. And then it will give me the motivation to get back in shape. So I go to the track. I'm like, yeah. Oh, wait, it's four times around this? Are you sure? This track looks a little bigger than the track I used to run on. So I make it through. I make it through. Um, hit, the, hit the stopwatch to end. And I look down with expectations of hope that will push me towards and my time was almost double. It was almost double what I used to run. And you know what I did? I walked off the track in disgust, put the stopwatch someplace where I would not find it again, 
And it completely demotivated me to ever want to do that again. I was like, it's too far gone. It's too far gone. But change is inevitable. Things happen. You can't run like you used to. You can't always be who you used to be. But we can look at these things and try to spend all of our time trying to recapture some stuff. Or we can see some things as, yes, this is ending, but it's the start of something else as well. One of the, a case in point is language that we use, that language evolves. Whether you like it or not, language evolves. And, you, you know, you see the start of the year, they put out, you know, words they've added to the dictionary, and some of them are words you didn't even know were supposed to be words, and some of them are like, man, that's just slang, you don't know. But language evolves. And if, it, if it didn't evolve, that would be a bad thing. Just think about all the stuff that if we were to go back to, say, 1950 or 1940, we would not have words for certain things. We, language has to evolve. There, there's, there's no iPhone. What would you just call it? I don't know. Maybe that's your homework. You can think of what you would call an iPhone in 1940, whether you like the phone or not. All the technology that we have, that there was no language for it, that language had to be developed. And usually as it goes, it, it changes so slowly that we don't really even notice it from year to year, except every so often we catch something and then maybe we grumble about it. We say, you know, that's not the way that it should be spoken. That's not the way that it should be done. And this is dangerous because that's what everybody said. And if we keep going back, maybe, maybe let's not go back to when you were a kid to when grammar and English was spoken right. Let's just go on back to Shakespeare when grammar was really done right. In fact, let's, let's start, try and read it when all, all, all the S's look like F's and until you figure that out, that's really confusing. Let's go all the way back to, 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 to 1000 A.D. And let's try and take some of those texts and try and read them. You can't even read them anymore. And that was the common thing. And things evolve, things change. And we can use these things as a launching pad or we can use them as a prison that keeps us bound. The emotions of the ancient men in Ezra's day were so entrenched in the past that they failed to appreciate the progress of the present. This is the danger, and it's that word entrenched in the past. That sometimes we just dig in. We just dig in for no good reason. Uh, sometimes, I, I won't ask you to raise your hand if you're stubborn at all any time. Uh, you can raise your hand for your neighbor next to you. But sometimes we all get stubborn and we just get stuck in something for no good reason. That if we were honest, if we were logical about it, we would see. And it's dangerous to become entrenched in the past and fail to appreciate the progress of the present. Because here's the deal, as a result, because they were so entrenched in the past, because they were so stuck about how it used to be, and this is not that, that they missed the joy of the present. You see, when I get stuck in that prison of nostalgia, when I don't see it as things are going to change and things will happen, and we're, stuck, we're still talking about Thanksgiving, we're talking about Thanksgiving, is sometimes our nostalgia and our resentment of what's happening now robs us of gratitude and joy in the present. That we can't be thankful for anything now because nothing now is as good as it used to be. All of these things happen and our emotions get captured by that. So it's important for us to realize that there, there are some things that we should hold on to. Sorry, I'm jumping ahead here. 
This doesn't mean that everything that's progress, that everything that advances is necessarily positive or good. There are negative things as well. And that's where we need to discern things. That's where we need to figure out what we need to hold on to. That's where we need to figure out what is worth keeping. But not everything is. That's difficult sometimes. So with progress, when we look at the, the, the one generation that's weeping, that's trapped in their, in their past, and we look at the generation that was worshiping, that was rejoicing, we suddenly look at progress, and, and we look at that as well, and we say, is, is, are they demonstrating irreverence or gratitude? Irreverence or gratitude. So we can fault one generation with stubbornness and say, well, they're just stuck in the past. But the younger generation, the, the other generation, can be equally at fault for dismissing the struggles and the achievements of the past. Dismissing the struggles and the achievements of the past. Again, just because something is new does not necessarily mean it's better. And many times, new methods and technologies are sometimes proven to be inferior to the former ways. How many of you have ever uh, just wanted to take your phone and just throw it as far as you could? And as you get older, it's not as far, but <laughs> I, I do know, man, I, I finally, I, I bought my phone. You know, you lease your phone now, so I bought it because it was the phone I wanted. And as soon as I bought it, they knew, they knew. They're like, okay, we're going to start sending stuff, so this messes up, and so this starts shutting off all the time. They're going to do stuff, and they were watching me. Sometimes you want to throw your phone and you can't, you know, can't get nothing to work and it's all messed up and you long for the days of, of Paul Revere when you wish someone would just ride by on a horse with the news so you could hear. <laughs> there are progress, but sometimes things are inferior to the former ways. Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 16, he says, Thus saith the Lord, stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? And walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. You see, the key for both generations, for both groups of people, is to find that one phrase that says, where is the good way? Where is the good way? Because that's the way that I want to be in. If that means that there's certain things that I need to redig, that I need to retrench because it's the good way, that's what I want to do. If there's some things that I need to leave behind, that I need to go on from because that is the good way, I want to make sure that I'm in the good way. Whether it's an old path, whether it's a new path, I want it to be in the good way. It's important for us to realize whether whatever generation you're part of, but looking back to a previous generation, that we should not despise the past or be irreverent of people that are older than us to look down on because we have progressed or you feel more progressed than them because, again, we cannot dismiss the struggle of previous generations. It doesn't matter if the way they did it was the best way or not. I still have to recognize the struggles that people went through to get to where we are today. I cannot ever forget that. I can look back in, in, in church history. I can look back in, in all these things and say, well, you know what, they, this should have been better or that should have been better. But I wasn't in the middle of the fight in that moment. And I can never dismiss the fight that people went through to get to where we are today. We can't deny that improvement when it involves we can't deny these things yet 
uh, it's, it's important for us to keep a hold of those things. The imperatives of today's generation need to be grounded in appreciation and thanksgiving of yesterday. They need to be grounded in appreciation and thanksgiving. I cannot ever look back with the reverence. On the one hand, and as I get older, I find people wanting to change things, and I don't like that. As I get older, I can't get trapped in resentment. I can't get trapped in these things. And as, as I look uh, at those who have gone ahead, I can't get trapped in irreverence, but I've got to be stuck in appreciation and thanksgiving of what previous generations have done. These traits bond with the past instead of me disconnecting or looking down on it. And this is the value of gratitude when I look at life as a whole in this situation in Ezra. Imagine what would have happened if there was gratitude all around as generations unite together in gratitude. To be grateful ensures a seamless transition with mutual respect on the part of each group. Nothing, nothing helps a situation out like gratitude. Nothing helps the situation out like thankfulness. And we look, we look here at what, what was the priority. Because gratitude begins to affect my priorities. Is my priority unity or conflict? You see, because the tragic outcome of warring factions is often disunity. Again, when we look at this situation in Ezra 3, what should have been a rousing shout? What should have been a glorious uniting effort that all of a sudden everything that people had hoped, had dreamed, had looked for, had anticipated comes to pass? It should have been a moment of supreme gratitude. It should have been a moment of great thankfulness. And still we see that there's a divide amongst the people. With disunity, disintegration and division usually follows. With disunity. There's disintegration and division. Jesus anticipated the day in which the church would feel great pressure to divide. And he prayed for unity. He prayed for unity for the benefit of his disciples so they would understand that there's a need to stand together with gratefulness, to stand together. If Jesus predicted that there's going to be division that will try to come into the church, then I'm sure that that is going to happen. In, in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23, Jesus says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they, may, may all, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me. Man, I cannot read. As you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. This idea of oneness, this is not just about our doctrine, this is not just that we believe in one God, but this is about us becoming one together as well. This is important for us to understand that God has called us not just to believe in oneness, but to be oneness. <laughs> it's pretty hard to be oneness when there's a bunch of ungratitude for each other. <laughs> it's pretty hard to be one when there's ungratefulness. It's pretty hard for generations and personalities and all kinds of people to come together unless there is a choice that's made towards gratefulness. The elders of whom Ezra spoke, they, they forfeited their opportunity to rejoice. They forfeited it. They should have been uniting with those around them to praise God for a rebuilt foundation. It, 
it would have underscored the priority of unity rather than retreating into something else. And we can do all of these things, and, and all of these things can happen, but thanksgiving needs to come to the forefront. The church must exalt the priority of unity over any generational preferences or misplaced loyalties. The church must exalt the priority of unity over generational preferences or misplaced loyalty. Hearts overflowing with thanksgiving go a long way to serve the cause of unity. Thankfulness. We have a choice, positive or negative. Positive or negative. The act of choosing is rooted in the ability to decide. And God created humans with the mental capability to process information, to weigh consequences, to evaluate issues, to choose the direction in which they will go. And these, it's, it's these actions, it's this ability that elevates us above other created things, that we have the ability to do all of this. And it's very clear that Scripture tells us that we have a choice, positive or negative, that we have a choice in our life to be grateful or ungrateful. If you read Scripture, I'm thankful for the Spirit of God. It does a lot in my life. <laughs> I'm thankful for the fruit of the Spirit. I'm thankful that sometimes when my love runs out, that the Spirit comes in and there's something supernatural that happens. I'm thankful when my peace runs out, that all of a sudden, because of the Spirit, I can have peace that passes all understanding. I'm thankful that when my patience runs out, long-suffering can kick in, that's something supernatural. I'm thankful that I have these things working. I'm thankful for all of the things that God does in my life, the blessings that He heals, that He provides, that He makes a way, that He does all of these things in my life. And it's almost innumerable the things that God will do in my life. But if we read in Scripture, we, I, there, there's not really any place that we find. We find commands in everything, give thanks for this is the will of God concerning you. Rejoice always. We find verses that talk about giving thanks. But we don't ever find where God made them give thanks. Now, God gave us reasons to be thankful, but He doesn't make people give thanks. That this is strictly something that I have to determine and make a choice about in my life. That while God can all of a sudden, in the middle of a circumstance, give me peace in the middle of a circumstance, God has never made me open my mouth and be thankful. He probably should have. <laughs> and so we realize that this is a choice. This is a choice. And you know what? As, as you begin to look at thankfulness, as you begin to look at joy, you begin to see that gratitude and thankfulness and joy are something that are very closely tied together, that gratitude and thankfulness are the soil from which joy can grow. And that if a person is thankful every single day, if a person demonstrates gratitude every single day, that an automatic thing that grows out of that is joy and we know that we need joy in our life and we know that when God waters when he does all that something can grow but sometimes I need to work the soil a little bit sometimes I need to do some things sometimes there's rocks of ungratitude sometimes there's all of these different things but it's important for us to realize that I am in charge of my own thankfulness I'm in charge of it I can go days, I can go weeks, I can go months without being thankful. And it will affect you spiritually. It will affect you spiritually. The feeling of thankfulness 
does not require much, doesn't require much thought, much ability with favorable circumstances. <laughs> doesn't require much. It's easy to be thankful when you get a big bonus. It's easy to be thankful on a great day when your hair fixes just perfect. When your tie ties right the first time, like, man, I know it's going to be a good day today. It didn't happen today. <laughs> when you have a great experience, when someone gives you a gift that you've been, man, you've just been, man, you've been wanting that, but you didn't want to spend the money on it because you're like, man, I don't know. And someone, man, that's just, it's easy to be thankful in those moments. Think of those times when someone has done something for you and you say, man, I don't even know how words could express. I'm just so thankful for what happened. It's easy in those moments to be thankful. It's easy. It's much harder to maintain a spirit of gratitude. I'm, I'm doing my best throughout every lesson that I teach to not say attitude of gratitude because I don't want to. To maintain a spirit of gratitude when bad things happen, when you lose your job, when it's not a great day, when someone takes the hat off your very head. <laughs> when you're robbed for real. When a house burns down. When sickness hits. It's, it's not easy to be thankful or grateful. This is where the choice is made. This is where the choice is made. This is where the choice is made in everything. This is what really decides. We find it with money. That Jesus stood by the offering plate and he said, these guys have given out of their abundance. But this woman who gave two mites is, has given out of her lack. She has nothing else. She had the choice to make that day. The others didn't have a choice to make. And it's in the good times, it's not really a choice. That just happens. But it's in the bad times, it's in the rough times, that all of a sudden we are now faced with, do I choose to be grateful? Do I enact and do I continue to till the soil? Do I continue to pull the things out of my life that could trip me up? Do I continue to do these things that I know is right, that will affect me spiritually, knowing that I have to do it? I'm sure this is the reason I've already mentioned it. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, and I'm sure you've heard this verse, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. In everything, give thanks. Such a small phrase, but man, if you've been in a bad situation, you know what a tough phrase that is. What a tough phrase. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. You ever thought about you're in the middle of a bad situation and say, I don't even know what to do? Paul gives us what the will of God is in every situation. I don't know what to do in the middle of this. I wonder what would happen if we took it as the will of God that we are to give thanks. What would change in our circumstance? What would change if we could simply somehow figure out how to give thanks in the middle of every tough time? God, I don't know where you are. I don't know what's happening. But I, I know his will in the middle of everything. Again, there's, there's nothing... <laughs> There's nothing difficult in word in Scripture. Paul says, I'm worried that you get carried away uh, from the simplicity that's in the gospel. I mean, that's a pretty easy statement there. There's not much room for leeway and everything give thanks. That means in everything, be thankful. That's not too hard to grasp. That's not a difficult concept. But you and I know that it's the reality of living that that it comes in. 
that comes in. But Jesus is very, is very clear. He says, I want you to know the cost of discipleship. He says, this is going to be great. This is, I mean, there's, the benefits are untold, but there is a cost to discipleship. And this is one of those things that will cost us. It will cost us to be grateful in bad times. Giving thanks in negative conditions takes determination and judgment. Takes determination and judgment. See, I have to make up my mind at some point. I have to decide some, cert- some things. Because there's going to be moments where I know when my feelings don't match up with, with what I know. There's going to be moments when my feelings are the exact opposite of what I know. It's not a choice. It's, it's, it's a choice, I mean. It's, it's not just a reaction. <laughs> it would be nice if it was a reaction. If when circumstances hit, my automatic reaction would be to be thankful. Just like when something good happens and I have a reaction. If just It was a blanket thing that whenever something happens, I'm automatically thankful. No, we know that's not the case. Even when the circumstances seem harsh or unreasonable, that verse still plays in our head, in everything, give thanks. In everything, give thanks. Our attitude should always rise above the apparent facts of the situation. And see, Jesus does something, though. Just like he says, it's impossible for us, uh, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And we think, well, you know, but he gives us, every man, a measure of faith. He gives us what we need to have. In the same way with gratitude. While he doesn't make us thankful, he gives us everything we need to be grateful. Hmm. You see, because I think what we forget is in the middle of bad times, and this is just natural, in the middle of bad times, in the middle of rough times, our vision becomes narrow, becomes very narrow. Um, You know, you get tunnel vision. Uh, You know, you get in the zone. You know, there's certain situations you get in when pressure hits, when certain things happen, and all of a sudden, it's like you forget about all the stuff around you, you forget what's going on, and you zero in on something. It's this hyper-focus. And in fact, it's this way when bad things hit, is we can't see anything else except for that problem, except for that issue. That's why it's important to talk to somebody else, because they might have a broader perspective than what you have in that moment. Okay? But that's natural. We become focused because we think, well, this crisis, this situation, it needs my attention. It requires everything that I have to put on this. And because of that, we begin to lose sight of other things. We begin to lose sight of what God has given us. And we begin to lose sight of this one fact that we're good at telling everybody else, like a lot of, well, no, maybe not like a lot of things. But there's probably a list of things that we could come up with that we can, we're real good at telling other people, but then when it comes to us, somehow just we lose track of it. <laughs> we can tell everyone else everything works together for the good for them that are called according to His purpose. But then when it's us, we're like, well, I know this doesn't fall under everything and good and purpose. But see, Jesus, it's a, it's a good instance that happens. We have two instances in Scripture that we're going to look at. In the good instance, we find that Jesus, he sends his disciples out. He sends 70 of them out. 
says, go do my work, sends them out two by two. And they come back and they are rejoicing. They're like, man, that was the greatest revival services we've ever had. There was people, there was, I almost said filled the Holy Ghost. They weren't yet. There was people healed. There was demons cast out. There was all kinds of great things. And like this guy had an ingrown toenail and it's not anymore. And all kinds of things. And they're just like having a party. And Jesus says, this is a good moment when gratefulness and gratitude come automatically. And he says, just a minute. Even in this good time, I want to turn your attention to what really matters. He says it's not just this world that matters. He says I want to make sure even in this good moment that you turn your attention towards something eternal. Rejoice not that all of this has happened. Yes, and it's good stuff. But you need to rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Because even in those good moments, we start to lose a little bit of focus. And he reminds us that there is something more. That there is more than just this world. We read the verses from Habakkuk chapter 17 and verse 18. Reread them real quick. The vine tree hasn't blossomed. There's no fruit on the vines. Labor of the olive may fail. The fields yield no food. The flock may be cut off from the fold. There's no herd in the stalls. Yet, I will rejoice. Now here... Here's the deal. Well, I don't know if this is the deal or not. Deal or no deal. You see, the problem comes is when we turn our gratitude towards temporal things. It's when we turn our attention. There's no hurt in the stall, but I'm glad there's hay. That's fine if you want to take that approach, but it's still a temporal thing. And there may be a day when there's no hay either. Or straw. <laughs> don't call Royal King and ask if they have hay. They have straw. You see, he turns our attention here. Habakkuk turns our attention not to anything temporal. Just as Jesus says, I'm not going to turn your attention to anything temporal. Your rejoicing, your gratitude needs to come from something eternal. And he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. You see, it's in these moments when we become hyper-focused, when our attention is grabbed by something and, and it begins to pull away and we begin to... We, really, what we're only seeing is the temporal in those moments. And I, I think our gratitude and the way that we can determine to, to, to have gratitude in every situation, to give thanks in every situation, is to somehow take our eyes from this temporal, from whatever the situation is bad or as good as it may be, and turn our attention back to the supernatural. Turn our attention back to the eternal. Turn our attention back to the God of our salvation. That our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That there is something more. That there is something greater. That I can always find gratitude in the supernatural, in the eternal. And you see, the problem is, is up until then, I'm just trying to will and convince myself that it's not as bad as it really is. And at some point in life, there are people that it's bad. And I am grasping at straws trying to figure out what may be good in this situation. But when I have the Lord, when I have salvation, when I have these things, I realize, Paul says, if I only had hope here, I would be of all men most miserable. So that if that, that means if all, all I had was hope here, he's saying that if my hope is in anything here, good, bad, or ugly... 
I'm going to end up with misery at the end because it will all perish. But my hope is built on something greater. My hope looks towards something greater that my vision, I know it doesn't mean that I don't experience, that I don't feel, that things don't, that's not, because I can't just negate all that stuff. I can't just go through tragedy and be like, well, man, nothing, nothing matters to me. It doesn't matter. It, it. No. Things do affect us. Things are real. Things do happen. I, 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 I can't just co- completely squash every emotion and just be a robot because I wasn't created that way. I can't, I'm not going to be led by those things and guided by those things, but neither can I eliminate those things from my life. But where I look, where I put my hope, where I establish things, is not just in the temporal, but I do it in the eternal. I pray that God would turn my eyes towards Him, that He would lift my eyes to the heavens, that in the middle of any circumstance, that all of a sudden I can catch a glimpse of what is to come, that there's something greater, there's something bigger that's working in my life. When Joshua, he assembled the tribes of Israel at Shechem, he recounted their history and presented their options to him, and he told them they could serve God or the gods of paganism. It came down to a matter of choice in Joshua 24. It says, If it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve. It's a choice. Whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell... But as for me and my house, we choose to serve the Lord. And the people answered and said, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. There's a choice that has to be made. A choice that must be made. The people made their decision by a conscious choice rather than just blind loyalty. Joshua took them through the process of the works of God, which allowed them to see who God was, what He had done for them. We see where we're going we have to take account into account the bigger picture of eternal life. Again, if, if all I had was hope in this earth, in this world, I would be most miserable. But I'm thankful that in the middle of every circumstance, I can look beyond this world. <laughs> I can look beyond this world. And that's something that you can't grasp until you get a glimpse of that world. This is why people are without hope. This is why people struggle in tough situations. It's because they haven't had a glimpse of the eternal. I wonder if I could just through my gratitude somehow be a witness. If through my gratitude I could be a witness to somebody that there's something greater, there's something bigger, there's more than this world. I begin to look and... (laughs) Well, anyway. I think this is important because... Scripture tells us it's not wise to compare ourselves among ourselves. I, I, there's, there's a lot to be said for willpower. There's a lot to be said for it. God has given us the, the power and the ability to will ourselves to certain things. Gratitude is one of those that we will ourselves to be grateful. And, and I'm thankful for that, but that, it can only take you so far. At some point, it has to connect with something spiritual. My will to gratitude, while God will not make me thankful, my will to gratitude can only go so far if I focus on temporal things. My will for gratitude can only take me as far as it needs to go if I turn my attention towards the eternal things. We finish here with a story about a famous baseball player, Lou Gehrig. He was known as the Iron Horse because he had four legs and was made of metal. No. 
He began a streak of 2,130 consecutive games, which makes me tired to think about, on June 1st, 1925 in Chicago. Weakened and no longer possessing his skills, he stepped aside on May 2nd, 1939 in Detroit. <clears throat> he was suffering from a disease, ALS, the official name, commonly known as Lou Gehrig's disease. And it's a deterioration of the nerve cells in the brain and spinal cord. And it robbed him of his strength and motor skills, and it eventually took his life. Gehrig's forced departure at age 36, it, it, it struck a chord with everyone who had played the game, and still plays. Derek Jeter, a shortstop, not anymore, for the Yankees, said, I'm fortunate to be in a situation where I've decided this is going to be my last year. With Lou Gehrig, it goes beyond what any other player experienced because of his health. He didn't get to choose. It was made for him. Jeter said that he has watched Gehrig's speech many times. He gave a speech on that last game that he played. He said, I can't imagine what it would be like. I don't know how he kept it together. It takes a lot of courage. All of us can only do this particular job we do for so many years. And I don't care who you are, how good you are. But afterward, life goes on. You hope. So it's not like your life is over with, your career's over. Unfortunately for him, his life ended way too soon. More than 61,000 fans were at Yankee Stadium that Tuesday for a doubleheader with Washington, and it was entitled Lou Gehrig Appreciation Day. They knew it was the end of Gehrig's Hall of Fame-worthy career, but at the time, there was no clear indication about his medical condition. About a month earlier, Gehrig had been diagnosed with ALS, but reports likened the affliction to polio, which had stricken President Roosevelt. And the perception was that Gehrig was on the way to being disabled, not dying. No one really knew what ALS was. They knew he had it, but they didn't know the significance of having it. My own impression was that he was very sick, says Ray Robinson, author of Iron Horse, Lou Gehrig in his time. Robinson, who... It's now 93. He watched from the stands that day. I had no idea he was destined to die very quickly. From the statement issued by the Mayo Clinic, it was impossible to tell that Gehrig was destined to die very quickly from some strange thing called ALS. Yet the first words that came out of Gehrig's mouth to begin his famed speech still resonate today. And he said this is how he started his speech that day. For the past two weeks... You've been reading about a bad break, yet today I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. The luckiest man on the face of the earth. He was to die not too long afterwards, and his speech is still rewatched by many as one of the most famous speeches in baseball. But even in this, this is a man who had a choice of gratitude. He had a choice of thanksgiving. Even in the face of uncertainty, and really, how many of us really know what's going to happen? Even in the face of un an uncertain future, challenges you and I today. We have to make a choice. No one else can make it for us. My prayer is simply, Lord, help me make the choice. And Lord, help me turn my eyes to the things that really matter. Not just in this life, but in the world to come. I want us to stand this morning. God has called us to choose gratitude. We are commanded to choose gratitude.
to rejoice in everything, to give thanks. And again, I know there's circumstances we face. I don't, I don't say this with disregard to anything that anyone faces in their life. But I hope in some way that we have seen that there are things to be grateful for when I lift my eyes to something else. When I look above, when I look to what is waiting for me, when I look at my salvation, when I look at what God has done for me in my life. And so this morning, I think it would be all right if we close this out by simply thanking the Lord. I know it may be tough in the middle of your circumstance, but maybe if it's tough to look around, why don't you look up? Why don't you look up this morning and see what God has done for you? Let's join together in thanksgiving this morning. Lord Jesus, Lord, we're grateful to be here in your presence today. Thankful that we can hear your word. Thankful that you challenge us, God. And Lord, you see every person, Lord, every circumstance they're facing, Lord. The difficulty, Lord, you see people that have, we have plenty to be grateful for. And you see people that are going through trying times. And Lord, no matter what we're going through, Lord, I pray that you would help us to remain grateful for what we have, Lord. And in those times when it's tough that we can lift our eyes, God, above our circumstances, above everything else and, and, and what the facts may dictate in our situation and turn our eyes to you, God. Lord, that we have our names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Lord, that there is hope beyond this world, that there is something greater, that there is an eternity, a, a, a destiny waiting for us, Lord, with you. Lord, I thank you and believe you, God. I thank you, Lord, for all you've done, God. I thank you, Lord, for everything that you're going to continue to do, God. And Lord, help us to always remember to return and give you praise in every situation, God. Despite everything, God. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here in Sunday school this morning. We're going to take a few moments and then begin our main service today. Thank you.